Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Glad to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. We thought what we would do today is pull out another topic that we've put a pin in a couple of times. It's a reference for repeat listeners, uh, the two of you. And that's the the attempted reboot of public education by both national, but especially Texas Republicans. Now, for those interested, you can browse the polling results we'll be referencing in the podcast in a post at the Texas Politics Project blog at texaspolitics.utexas.edu slash blog. Now, this topic has come up a few times in the podcast, and I, you know, I, I was thinking as I was preparing for this, we have drilled down into this a little bit a couple of times, maybe. I say the issue has inserted itself into the yes. podcast a few times. But, but to be honest, we've been waiting, I think, to really delve into it because we knew for a few weeks that we'd have some new Texas polling data shed some light on the subject, hopefully. And also, I think, you know, what we also knew instinctively, and it turns out to be true, that the ground is shifting a little bit on this topic. And so a lot of the questions we've run in the past and sort of what we think we know about education, it informs where we are now, but it doesn't tell us the whole story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's it, and in fact, that underlines how nice it is to have the data because, you know, it, it's both evidence, as well as being fodder, it's also evidence. And, and the evidence suggests that there are interesting things going on. I think that's right. <laughs> so so let's dig in. So like, you know, should we start with overall quality and then go down from there? Yeah, I think Get this more is, specific from there? Yeah, I think this is a good place just to start this discussion because I think it's one of the set pieces. And we'll kind of come back to, I think, a couple points of sort of what are we think of as some of the, the set pieces to public opinion and how that informs some of these new issues. And then I think the, the political maneuvering around it. And also underlines the theme that we had Darren on the show last night, last week, which was very fun. If you didn't listen last week, yeah. we had Darren Shaw on the show and it's always a good time. It's always good in a uh, an interesting injection to have Darren in. But as as Darren says, echoing many other people in the, in the polling business, trend is our friend. Trend is our friend. You know, it allows us to make comparisons not just in the moment and among groups, but over time. So it gives us some good quality uh, in sort of understanding things. So w- let's start. Let's start at the big picture here. You know, one of the big sort of tropes about Texas public education, I think, you know, mostly I would say it's less prominent in Texas than outside of Texas is to say that the Texas education system is not very good, the public education system. Here we're talking about K through 12 public education. We've asked about Texans, you know, ratings of the overall quality of, of the public education here, system here in Texas. It's remarkably stable, remarkably lukewarm, I would say, right? So we say, is that you, would you rate it as excellent, good, not very good, terrible, or don't know? Going back, uh, let's see, two, four, six, eight surveys going back to 2013 and asked most recently in our just released poll in February, uh, no more than... Eight percent of Texans in any one of those polls have, has said that the Texas public education system is excellent. So there is a little bit of it internally. Then. Yeah, there's internal <laughs> consistency. <laughs> you know, most people, the plurality say it's good. So 41 percent uh, again in February, 30 percent said it's not very good. 10 percent said it's terrible. You know, ultimately, I say that's why I say these are lukewarm. It's not 
so negative, but it's but generally, you know, Texans don't necessarily look at the Texas education system and say this is, you know, this is leading the world. This is top notch. This is high quality. And, and just amazingly stable. As I'm looking at this column of numbers, I mean, yeah, you know, the the good the good varies between what 39 and 45, mm-hmm. and 45 is a one time mm-hmm. is a one time score on the good. You know, and as you say, I mean, excellent has never been higher than 8%, never been lower than 5 mm-hmm. and so on. All the others are, you know, even the terrible number is, you know, between 8 and 14. Mm-hmm. And 14 was in 2013, and it's never been quite that low and, since. And there's some circumstances that would indicate Yeah, that was a, an, a rough year for public ed. Right, exactly. So, but the other thing I think, I mean, you bring this up too, is, you know, this is despite the fact that the legislature has made attempts to improve the public education system to address the issue in the way that voters would notice, especially uh, in the 2019 session. But there's no indication here that voters' fundamental sort of, you know, view of the quality of the education system has changed We give a little hat tip to the departing Dan Huberty there, who led that fight in 2019 on the House side. Yes. Anyway, so that brings us to today, right, and sort of the, the topic. So we, we asked, you know, in addition to asking over about the quality of public education, the most recent poll, you know, we, we tried to get into sort of the discussion that we're seeing now take shape around public education, or at least begin to look at it. And so one of the things that I think, you know, that we, we looked at, I think, that really touches on, I think, the sort of, I think what's the emerging axis of conflict in some ways, or at least the framing of this, is this question of parental input in, in, in education. So we asked basically whether or not Texans agree or disagree that the parents of children in Texas public schools have enough say or have enough influence on what their children are taught. Okay, now before you, you yes. give the, I want to ask you, like, you know, we worked hard on the phrasing of this question. I'm still not 100% happy if that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, neither am I. But, I, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's a podcast. We can air this out a little bit. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm should. still not sure how I do it differently. Well, but you... there's still, when I look at this, the there's still something about this that I well, I don't want to ask, you know, in, in the the million different message testing yeah. testing ways that we could ask this. Well, but, it, but, I mean, I just want to, it's a hard question to to calibrate. Well, I think if somebody's listening to this right now, a, a very simple reaction might be, why don't you just ask about CRT? Why don't you just ask about critical race theory and whether or not parents support right. it being taught in the school or not? And this is, I think, one of the ways that our, you know, I think our survey and the work that we do with this poll and this time series is a little bit different. We want to get down to the fundamental attitude here. And, and even though there are definitely plenty of anecdotal examples of extremely, I'll say on the one hand, you have anecdotal examples of very upset parents at school board meetings. You also have, you know, on the other hand, you know, anecdotal examples of bad lesson plans, but we don't have, you know, the sense that this is a systematic problem. So we want to, before we get into this, we, you know, I think this is the way we approach this. We want to take a step back and say, hey, real quick, everybody, do you think that parents have enough say in what their children are taught? Yes or no, no opinion. And what we find is that basically Texans are pretty much split on this. 41% say, yeah, parents do have enough influence. 41% say parents don't have enough influence. 15% say, I don't know, which is not surprising. I'm sorry, not 41%. I, I take that back. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. It's 44-41. Right, 44-41. So basically, but to me, that's that's basically an even split. And not sure. only that, when we look at the intensity, is it, you know, somewhat agree with that, somewhat disagree strongly, you know, the majority... Uh, about half of the voters are in the middle. They're kind of saying, yeah, I, I sort of agree. And I think to me, as someone who looks at public opinion, this is one of the fun things I think about us doing more frequent public opinion polling as we've been increasing the number of surveys we do is we get to look at some of these kind of, you know, I would say, we get to look at, you know, the nuance of these things a little bit more closely. And when you look at an issue like this, what this tells me, if nothing else, is that this is, number one, a pretty new issue. 
There is some partisan structure, but it's not overwhelming. 57% yeah. of Democrats think that, you know, they have enough saying their children's education, but 29% say they don't. Yeah, I mean, I think in looking at in looking at, I mean, two things about that, and we'll put these graphics on the web page. I mean, what you're saying, I think, is a really good way of looking at this in terms of saying this is not one of those issues like some that we have in the poll where the strong agreement and strong disagreement are the two towers, right. and there's a little bit of a valley in between. Right. This is the opposite, right? Right, and it's and it's readily apparent, I think, when you look when you look at the graphics. I mean, on the party ID, I mean, I think what's interesting in the politics of this moving forward is that, you know, the Democrats are a little are more lopsided on this. They're not as you know, they're not. Again, it's not super skewed. You still see that basic kind of structure, mm -hmm. but where the decisions still where the where the opinions are still have still not gotten intense is mostly among Republicans. The Republican graphic looks more like the overall graphic where mm -hmm. the Democratic graphic is much more in the direction of uh, of agreeing with the statement that parents have enough. Right. But and still only 57% of Democrats. I mean, that's a majority, but, you know, you have a, a pretty big 15% of, de of Democrats don't don't know yet. But I think the point, you know, I think the point to take away from this is if you've been watching coverage of sort of, you know, a lot of some other issues we're going to get to and some results in a minute, you know, you would think that this is something that is roiling, you know, the public school system in some way and the parents and there's all these conflicts. Over there. And what this data indicates is, well, probably not. And also, you know, to the extent that, you know, I mean, I think the way your, your suggestion here about how this differs from other results we've seen is great, because I think that also speaks to the fact that everything else we probably polled on that was, you know, sort of at least reasonably salient over the course of the last year around the legislative session, much of which was extremely conservative legislation, you do see extreme Democratic disapproval. And in a lot of cases, in a lot of issues, you see extreme Republican support. And this is one of these issues, again, that not the case, but that's also, and we'll get to this, there's a reason that this is probably a good framing and why it's a good political issue. And the sort of transition from that is look at the response to this by geography. Yeah. So here what we find is, you know, we ask urban voters, you know, again, do parents have enough say or not? 48% say yes, 36% say no. Again, I think, you know, if that's the issue that you're fighting on in education in the urban areas and you're a Republican, I think you'll take it. Uh, but the more importantly, if you look at suburban voters, among whom you know, you're going to have a lot of parents with kids in school, it's basically a split issue. Yeah. 43% say they have enough say, 42% say they don't have enough say. And that's really where I think this messaging is is targeted and being focused. Sure. Right? And so, again, if you're Republicans and you've been seeing Democrats make increasing gain in the Texas suburbs, and you've seen that they've been successful using the education issue, all of a sudden this framing of it really complicates that matter a little bit because ultimately in the end, and we'll come back to this, I think, but, you know... Even among Democrats, are you what? What is the expectation that ninety percent are going to say that parents have enough say in their children's education? I mean, it really there's sort of a normative problem you you hit here in terms yeah. of a ceiling, right? Yeah. And what this tells me too, from a practical point of view, is that you know if you're if you're doing campaign consulting polling, you're going to be making some money running some message testing polls on this stuff. Oh yeah. Between now and you know August. Right. So we also asked about some other things that are related to the, that are related to this, but I think are a little bit more specific. Um, we asked about you know attempts by legislators, parents, and some parent groups uh, and other sort of hopeful elected officials to remove books from public libraries. Sort of short version of this, not terribly popular, at yeah. least at this point. You know, sixty-two percent of Texans oppose this, seventy-eight percent of Democrats, sixty-nine percent of Independents, and even among you know Republicans for whom this is alleged. You know, this is where the issue is bubbled up. Yeah, it's bubbled up. It's certainly targeted. Conservative. And, you know, what do we call it? Conservative plus, yeah. you know, groups and parents. And here we've got, you know, 41% support, 44% oppose. 
So it's, you know, it's a probably basically a net even issue, this idea of removing books. If we talk about, you know, basically limiting the extent to which teachers can emphasize the role of racism in U.S. history in, in public schools, 50% um, oppose efforts to limit what teachers can say, 37% support it. Again, a little more partisan structure here. Um, you know, thirty, but but not as much as you'd think. Again, I, these are new issues for a lot of people. So for Republicans, a plurality, forty-seven percent oppose these efforts, which I think might be surprising to people. Forty-two percent support it. Similarly surprising, while fifty-five percent of Democrats oppose efforts to limit the discussion of race in public school classrooms, thirty-three percent support it. Right. This is where, if you're somebody from outside the state, you know, they start wagging their finger yeah. and going, "See those those conservative Democrats in Texas." You right. Know, now that's becoming less and less true. Yes. But I think this also underlined, they're not all completely gone, but also I think I don't know that this is, I guess the point is, that, is this ideological or not? Because there's a lot of cross pressures here. Well, I think, and that's, and that's why we're talking about it. the newness of the issue. I mean, well, we've we, emphasized the newness of the issue, but also the cross pressures are pretty massive in both of these, I think. I mean. Yeah, I think, well, I think you're right. We can get into the cross pressure. I'll just say, you know, other evidence real quick before we jump into that of, to, you know, the newness of the issue and how this has moved is we can look at, you know, we've asked about this question about, you know, the teaching, you know, basically the emphasis of racism in the teaching of public school students uh, before. And we asked it back in June, uh, sort of in kind of the, I say in the middle of the legislative session, I it guess. It was in a very hot, ripe session for this because this was, you know, they, the legislature was debating this and they passed the legislation during the... Right. And so the last session. And so what we found is that, you know, when this issue came up, it was pretty much, again, unsurprisingly, a split issue. Forty four percent of, you know, supported the this idea of, you know, restricting the discussion of racism. Forty five percent opposed it. Here we are now again in February. So about seven months later, thirty seven percent support, 50 opposed. So you see that there's been some movement, but the underlying movement is really surprising and it's surprising in a couple of different directions. So whereas back in in June, 69% of Republicans supported these efforts, 21% expressed opposition. Jump ahead to February, it's 42 support, 47 oppose. That tells you something about, you know, the potency of this issue and how it's a little bit, in some ways, I would think a little uncontrollable. Well, and independents are interesting on this, right? Because in the in the current, in the most current poll, it was, you know, you know, independents were 32 support and 50 oppose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, you know, if you went back into the podcast archives, you'd find us sort of a little dismissive of independence or maybe, maybe dismissive is even not so interested, but I, I think I've come to find independence a little more useful because of the things that I think people that are politically engaged kind of look down on them for, which is they're not super engaged, not super informed, but they're a good heat check. They're picking up things in the environment loosely. Yeah. And they're not and they're picking them up in a way that's not necessarily filtered in the way that partisans filter every bit of information. Right. And so you do get kind of a sense, I think, to, you know, at least a different version of how is this playing, right? Yeah. But I just want to add one other thing here, which is, you know, we saw a lot of movement among Democrats, too, and in the opposite direction. So whereas 75 percent expressed opposition uh, back in June, 55 percent expressed opposition in February. The share who were supportive of these efforts went up from 17 to 33. Now, I don't I always say you can't make a line through two points. So we have to wait yeah. and see. Well, you can make a line. It's not a trend line. Well, you can make a trend. Yeah, you could make a line. That's right. Fair enough. <laughs> fair, fair minimum. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you want to but to make a trend line, you need three points. So I think we need to wait and see. But these results also indicate the extent to which, you know, even within the parties, it's not as though this is necessarily, I would say, you know, activating partisans in sort of, you know, traditional, There's not an orthodoxy obvious way. There's non-orthodoxy yet. So, okay. 
So there's still a lot to learn here. You know, we should expect these these this to shift, right? And this is also obviously in a broader context in the you know in the public education environment, right? Highly visible fights over all kinds of issues, right? So let's go back to the cross pressures, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Okay. You know, I, go ahead. You want to start? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I think this is an interesting one of the things that's a set piece of us talking about how people use poll results is the caution against overinterpretation. Yes. And I am really, I mean, I really want to overinterpret this. I want to, I want to look forward to overinterpreting it almost in the sense that, you know, per an op-ed that you and I wrote that we have hopefully coming out in Texas newspapers in the next couple of weeks, you know, we've been keeping our eye on this sense of like, what's going on with democratic political culture, with the norms of democracy. Mm-hmm. And I do think that one of the cross pressures on this, I think we, we referred to in the podcast either last week or the week before, you know, referencing somebody's tweet, which is that name me somebody that talked about, you know, banning books from libraries or banning books writ large that came out looking good in history. Yeah. Right. And I do feel like some of that is going on in terms of the the library piece. And then mm-hmm. there's the other piece that is a little less pegged to this democracy <clears throat> sort of subject, but is kind of deeply rooted or you know, has a lot of precedent. And that is people's kind of reflexive, positive view of teachers. And I think both of those things are at play here. And I'm going to be tempted, you know, if the trend lines go and this begins to look more partisan, Mm -hmm. to see this as, you know, on the library side as part of another sign that those norms are not, those democratic norms are not what they used to be when it comes to censorship. Mm -hmm. The teaching thing is less tied up in that, but is also, I think, pointing in the direction of, Another area where we're watching cross pressures, which is this thing that we've talked about on here before, the subject that we've talked about on here before of, you know, Democrats attempting in a way to sort of wrest education from Democratic ownership or Republicans looking to take ownership of this issue away, reframe it and work on it as a Republican issue from a very different perspective. But part of that, I think the question then, do you have to loosen people's trust faith, attachment to teachers for that to happen. Well, I think that's already happening, right? I mean, I think, and you know, and you know, I think you're, you're talking in a sort of a longer, not even terribly long term, but a sort of a bigger, a bigger picture, sure. you know, version of this. And I do think, you know, you are seeing this across society, you know, and you've seen it sort of work its way down from, you know, first we're, you know, we're questioning, you know, scientists and academics. Sure. That's been going on for a while. We, we question our elected officials, you know, of course, Right. We're questioning business leaders because of, you know, the engagement, especially of certain businesses with with some very touchy issues in society. So we question them. Certain segments of society are questioning police officers and other sort of traditional sources of authority. And it was only kind of a matter of time. And I think the pandemic is a big factor in this in the sense that it gave parents a much greater insight into what was going on in their children's classrooms. And part of the difficulty, and there's sort of two things I want to I want to say, I want to stay on this point. I want to go somewhere else, which is the difficulty of Democrats to deal with this. But I mean, in a more just localized in time and space sense, I mean, I, I would sort of repeat what you said, but in a slightly different way, just not keep boring now. But traditionally, I, I says, I mean, you know, when we talk about like, we're, you know, when we've, we've been polling on education ads for a long time here in Texas, right? I mean, as you said, we've been pulling back, you know, around the big education cuts after uh, after the, the last great recession. We're pulling, you know, going into 2019, we've pulled on school choice, which we'll get to, and all kinds of other things related to education, what people think would improve the education system, how it would be effective. And generally, you know, when we're looking at attitudes on education, you know, really what we're generally finding is 
you know, people don't like the education system or they rate it poorly, which we already talked about. But if we ask them or about- medi- you know, Mediocrely. Mediocrely. Yes. But if we ask them about the local schools or if we ask parents about their children's schools, they love it. They love the parents. They love the schools. They love the teachers. They think they're great. They just think the system could be better. You know, and what that is generally meant is also that people think, you know, teachers are paid too little. They think there needs to be more resources in the system. Uh, and generally, you know, when we're talking about education issues in a, in a campaign season, we're talking about either spending money on education, closing educational achievement gaps, or, you know, basically how we're going to spend that money, paying teachers yeah. more, getting. And ultimately, that's a good democratic terrain. You know, put yourself in a thought experiment, right? I mean, what Republican candidate is going to go out and pledge to put give more money to the public education system than a Democratic candidate is willing to pledge? Right. Full stop. And that's why Democrats have an advantage on this. Now... You see, and this has taken a little bit of time, I think, you know, we're at a point where we're, what we're really talking about, the question about education is, well, who's defending the interests and rights of parents? Right. And that's a very, very different discussion. And it, we didn't get there directly. I think, you know, we saw with critical race theory something that popped up. But as you can see in the attitudes, you know, we're in a state that the majority of public school students, just like the majority of adults, are non-white. So to say that teachers shouldn't talk about the history of racism in the U.S., it ultimately is going to just it's going to have a bit of a problem. There's going to be a bit of a ceiling. You have to do a lot of heavy lifting to loosen what people or or get people beyond what is a fairly intuitive and reflexive response to that. Right. And I would say there's also a fairly. Well, we're seeing that doing. I think that's, I think that's why there's so much caricature about this because I think it's almost conscious. I think in the effort that there people aren't, you know, nobody will, there's a lot of, you know, again, we were going to bring this up later. This was something Go that ahead. was good in the John Oliver segment. Yeah. Uh, John Oliver did a segment on his HBO show Sunday night on critical race theory, and we'll talk about another piece of it. But one of the elements he did have in there was a pretty funny montage of people quoting the Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, some famous Martin judge Luther King basically. line from his I Have a Dream space that we're going to judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Mm-hmm. And how ironic it was that that was, you know, he, I think he, he referred to it as almost kind of a talismanic chant or something that people can say that so we can just move on. Well, right. And, and, and I think that's why you have to have the kind of hyperbole in the discussion of critical race theory that we, that we see in that well, or so-called critical race theory. Well, right. And I mean, it ignores the fact that the reason that these discussions were going on in classrooms throughout the country was because of you know, the very high profile public deaths of African-American men at the hands of police and the social justice protests that followed. Whether the, whether, wherever you know, the kids in the classroom you know, came down on this issue, whether or not they thought, they had questions. Yeah. You know? And so these things are, so the idea of just saying, well, we're just not going to talk about that it just doesn't ring as through as sort of an educational principle. Same thing with banning books. Not generally, as you said, in history, well looked upon. But if we shift that to, let's not talk about the specifics, but let's talk about whether or not you as a parent have enough say in what is going on in your child's education. Not only one is there, you know, I think, you know, a history of that kind of rhetoric that's generally just sounds right to people. Of course, I should have a say in my kid's education. But two, there's already constituencies for this in the homeschooling movement, the charter school movement. There are allies in the legislature private, around this private yeah. school movement. Right. And, and the private, private school in, you know, industry has a. And this is right. And this know, is, is organized. Let's put it that And way. this is an issue that, it, you know, especially around vouchers, it has not been able to gain a lot of traction in Texas for a lot of reasons. But ultimately, if we're talking about education, the selection and what we're really talking about when we talk about education is not funding, but about parental control over their 
child's education and parental control over educational decisions, that really is a pretty good framing to start talking about vouchers. Again. Well, and in particular, and I think, you know, you introduced this and I want to make sure we, you know, we flag it enough. You know, we always talk about the stable pattern of attitudes on an right. issue and the tissue terrain and then, you know, uh, again, exogenous Ooh. shocks, yes. right? Or some some di- some mark of discontinuity that changes the, the regular right. terrain. And clearly there were a bunch of things about the pandemic mm-hmm. that helped activate this conversation. And, and, and it's the, ex- you know, and the experience that people had during the pandemic is kind of the connective tissue. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, experience with alternatives to classroom teaching, dissatisfaction with the cautious approaches towards managing the pandemic in some schools, um, you know the 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 public role of teachers groups and in other parts of the state and unions in seemingly slowing down the return to the classroom mm-hmm. in some cases i think that's fair enough to say you know the inherent you know the inherent difficulties writ large of managing public education during the pandemic and then on top of that all these ugly ugly fights over masks vaccination requirements you know fisticuffs in school board meetings rude language, all of that real, I mean, I think you can't underestimate that as a catalyst here that then raises the question, you know, as we move into like what, where this political debate is going to go, what the degree of planning on the part of some advocates was and and what the degree of opportunism is. And I say political opportunism in a very, you know, one can take that as as derogatory, not in this, uh, but not not here. not here, not here, not where we're talking. <laughs> yes, I mean certainly, I you know I I applaud opportunism <laughs> in many in many ways and, and embrace it for the, for that fact. Um, but I think you can't underestimate that as like the catalyst here. Yeah, and I think and I think you know whether whether it was planned or whether it's opportunity, you know, Democrats have a real problem on their hand because on any one of these issues. Um, you know, I think I think critical. I mean, you know, critical race theory writ large, whatever that means, has a, a certain power of its own as a watchword. I think among Republicans and conservatives at this point, and it's messy enough and unknown enough right. about Democrats that it's going to take some amount of work that they do not want to be spending their campaign time on. Yeah, clarifying this for their voters. And, the, and there are, you know, and there's plenty of documentation now that there were, you know, again, entrepreneurs and opportunists who. I don't want to say engineered because that, that asserts too much control, but certainly recognize the potential for a campaign mm-hmm. bra- based around the language, the very right. phrase critical race theory, that they have leveraged very effectively and have in part through the use of conservative media outlets, but in part through recognizing that this was a good a good moment for this. Now, so. Yeah, and I think what it's done is, is it's frozen Democrats in their tracks on an issue that they usually can win on. Because ultimately, whether you're talking about critical race theory, you know, then it becomes an instance of, well, let's find the worst, you know, the worst example that we can of sure. of a lesson gone awry. And then that becomes what you're defending as a Democratic candidate. Let's find the most lurid passage within, you know, hundreds of books on a list if you're a Democrat who's defending keeping these books in the library, you're defending that. Further, again, are you the Democrat who's going to say that, you know, parents should have less say in their kids' public school? Well, you can try. Yeah, but... It didn't work for every... It didn't work in Virginia, did it? And, and I think that the John Oliver... I keep wanting to call John Oliver John Stewart, so I stutter oh. every time. Right before I... Um, I know it's... I'm not anti-British. Um, you know, but that was one of the interesting illustrations, and I think they did it from a kind of exposit. They wanted to make a point. Yeah. But they also, I mean, it also raised how complex this is, the way that they handled, 
the inevitability that, yeah, some of these lessons are absurd and they don't work. And they used a black woman on his writing mm -hmm. staff who told, you know, simultaneously told horrifying stories in a funny way, in a, in a funny way about being one of two black kids in a school with teachers trying to implement, you know, quote unquote, kind right. of race sensitive we're, lessons we're, we're, and just how shit. like ridiculous it you, was where, where she somehow always ended up being the freed slave <laughs> right exactly in in a historical mind experiment so you know i i think you know that was both rhetorically smart on their part for the argument they were making but also i don't want to say unintentionally but also had the consequence of illustrating that yeah you know look this goes wrong all the time and it goes wrong not just for you know, per the language of the model legislation, the mm -hmm. anguish of kids that are made of white kids, essentially, yeah. that are made to feel bad about themselves. But for the black kids kind of sitting there going, what? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I thought it was it was pretty effective. You know, if, if somebody was going to look at this from a complex point of view. Now, there's another element that we want to get to as we as we wind down. But, you know, these attempts to focus discussion on public ed on issues of content you know, have also coincided, have also been accompanied by, this is where, you know, the yeah. opportunism planning piece comes up by the revival of the until recently relatively dormant issue of using public funds for parents to use for pi private education. You know, the shorthand being vouchers. And for a while, the the folks that advocated this use of funds and, and wanted, you know, state funds to, to give, you know, parents, their, their term of choice was their term of their preferred term was school choice rather than vouchers. And I think that was almost certainly after some message testing research, which, you know, we're all adults here. So we've seen stirrings on vouchers in Texas, certainly in the interest group universe. And, and this was part of the, the argument of the, one of the sub arguments of this John Oliver thing that, you know, the, they didn't quite say it. I rewatched it again last night. They don't quite say this is a trojan horse for this but they come pretty close yeah. you know, that crt basically is a you know whether intended certainly at this point in time has become a vehicle for re-raising the issue of school choice as the solution to parents not liking how their children are being taught in school i don't know how to say this exactly but i'm going to try okay. <laughs> i was thinking about the intersection of these things and i was thinking you know if there is one way that you could get liberals on board with school vouchers it's critical race theory laws. <laughs> I mean, in some way, what you're basically—I mean, I mean, tr truthfully, if you think about this, you know, the issue has always been: well, what are we talking about? We're talking about public education. We're thinking about these big picture issues about funding in the school districts. We're talking about the closing of achievement gaps, of which you know, vouchers are not a systemic res like response to anything in the education system. But now, if basically the idea is, well, you know, we can pass all these laws to make the school look like what you know, basically conservative legislators running the state want them to look like, or we could just we could just take these kids who have very different you know their parents have very different views about educa education and let them take the money elsewhere. I mean, I don't think that's actually going to happen. It's a little bit cynical, and I'm joking. I'm half joking here, but I also think it yeah, does. You know, put a pin in that. But it changes let's, the terrain. Let's re-raise that possibility. Come about April of 2023 well, and see where the discussion. But is. it really does change the terrain of the way you think about something like that. Now, again, there's still some structure. Yes. Yeah, there's definitely there's still. I mean, the question is, I mean, the real there's a couple of things here, right? I mean, one is. By all indications, the lieutenant governor said this is going to be his last session. He could change his mind. But obviously, vouchers has been a pet issue for him, if not a primary issue, since he was a state senator. He has tried to get this across the line. So there's no reason to you know, not expect a push here. But, you know, have the underlying fundamentals of this change, which is that, you know, ultimately for most rural legislators and most rural legislators are Republican legislators, 
there isn't really a purpose for school choice when you don't have a range of educational institutions. So the potential of taking money out of the system is just not as attractive. Well, here's another piece to that that you know you and you ra- you know you kind of you touched on you know discussions of spending and yeah. how spending enters into this a few minutes ago. But here's another piece of this as we look forward and we jump over the elections. That it's nice to not be talking constantly about the elections. We'll come this, well, this time. I know we're coming back, <laughs> but but there's one thing I would say about this is that another factor that is also just hovering over all of this and I think is going to fundamentally affect this issue should the, you know, and I I don't see any reason. I mean, the Lieutenant governor obviously wants this. It's going to be an issue Mm -hmm. uh, before the legislature in, in 2023. The question is, you know, and here the model that I would follow is border security, Mm -hmm. which is the state is a wash in money. Yeah. Um, Comptroller Glenn Hager reported you know, the you know the last the, the the last revenue report was you know, and I almost I can almost see the the comptroller looking a little pain to have to say this to the legislature, but yes, we're awash in money. Right. You know, revenue is much higher than pretty. He keeps updating the you know, mm-hmm. uh, moving the revenue projections up, bringing in lots of money. We're awash in federal money. There is going to be a lot of money to throw at this issue in the spring, in ways that I think will inform the kind of possible strategies or a million other variations that you're talking about. Because it will be very easy if people want to use this as, and, and they've tried this in the if, if the, if the voucher advocates want to do this, and they've tried to do this in the past, to say, you know, we want a pilot program, we just are looking for some money that so that we can say it doesn't come out of the existing public education. Well, you know, it's going to be a lot of money laying around. And when we say a lot of money, you know, these kind of pilot programs have often been discussed in the ranges of millions of dollars. You know, there will be billions of dollars next time. Yeah. And so I would look for creative funding solutions that enable this to happen or these ideas to at least move a little farther than maybe they have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the funding, you know, because there will be more money to do it with in a way that enables you to fight off the idea that you're taking money away from public education. Now we know what public education advocates will they say they will say, well look, we're still underfunded. Right. You know, you're still if you're willing to do that, then you should be putting that money back into well, the constitutionally mandated public education system. Well, and that raises the, the issue and we'll get out of this soon, but I mean it does raise the issue of what what does the leadership look like? And yeah. we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of departing members with experience in the public education space and what you're, you know, what you're kind of sketching out is if if leaders want this, there certainly seems to be you know an opportunity here to make to make a deal to have yeah. a grand bargain that both you know expands access to vouchers and also deals with some of these other issues in public education, if they choose to do that. Yes. There are logs to be rolled and money to roll them with, if, if people it, are willing to do it. If people are willing to do it, I would say, and you know, and if you know, I mean, like we saw this last time, even around you know important Republican priorities, and if the right people are put in the right positions to make it happen, right. Well, what a nice chat about policy and politics. Yeah, look at us. Um, we're here. Uh, early voting continues through Friday in the primary election. So if that's your jam, uh, don't forget early voting ends Friday and then you can vote in person on Tuesday. Uh, thanks to Josh and to our excellent production team in the audio studio in the Liberal Arts Development Studio at UT Austin. Um, thanks for listening. And remember, you can find all the data we referenced today and much, much more at the Texas Politics Project website. That is texaspolitics.utexas.edu. 
We'll be back again soon with another second reading podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good rest of the week. The second reading podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 